0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 113. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino, my kin, our Father, our King, Lord, we bless your name tonight. Lord, we want to say that we love you and we thank you for bringing us once again to a place where we can stop, we can slow down, and we, be- uh, we can begin to focus on your name, on your great love for us and what you've done for us, on how you are continuing to carry us along and protect us, even in the midst of these dangerous times that we live in, these confusing uh, political times, the, the the um um the social unrest, the um the racial tension, um all of the, the pandemic news and all of the, the health scare and just Lord the general um sense of 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 Panic that's uh, sweeping the world today. We don't believe that we should have that mindset. We are children of the King, and you have come and taken up residency within us via the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, within inside us. Thank you, Lord, that you've also um, preserved for us your very words of life, your. Word of life, the Scriptures, the Bible that we hold, help us to press in and continue to to um, study it and to to memorize it and to to um, chew on it and to um, just to hide your words deep down inside of us because that's the very anchor that's going to keep us grounded in in what you have done for us and are doing for us. Continue to bless us, to raise us up, to give us a voice of witness to those around us. We know this is a, a really a, an opportunity because so many people in the world don't have this peace that passes all understanding. They don't know Yeshua. They don't know who Jesus is. This is an opportunity for us to witness to them, to share with them the good news, to to let them know that there's something greater than the confusion that's going on in this world. Help us to to keep that perspective, give us divine appointments and opportunities to share our faith. Uh, give us holy boldness as we move forward with that uh, type of dialogue. Um, continue to, to heal us, Lord, and to protect us and raise us up. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Be Shem Yeshua. Amen. Just want to thank everyone for joining me week after week for my live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at a real life congregation in Thornton, Colorado. And right now, as you're looking at my screen for this YouTube video that I'm recording, I've got the Harvest website, Kehilatunavah, in Thornton, Colorado. This is my home congregation, and I invite you out every Saturday afternoon. We meet together. If you're um, able to uh, meet with us, we are in the Denver, Colorado area. Thornton is just north of Denver. Go to our website at www.graftedin.com. And from the home site, um, you'll find that there are resources that you can avail yourself of, teachings, um, you know, questions, uh, get to know who we are. Uh, but also, if you're not able to make it out to our live Uh, services every Shabbat, every Saturday, which we canceled this week. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why there, but um, you're always invited to catch us on YouTube. We usually live stream the services, live stream them as we're... as, as Pastor Mark is uh, uh, teaching. But then uh, after the fact, usually a few days later, I believe, they upload the recording to YouTube. So you can catch us on our YouTube channel there as well. Um, and then since you do have Internet access, head on over to my own website at TateSetora.com. That's www.tetzetorah.com. T O R A H dot com, and that's my own personal tour teaching website. I park all of my commentaries and uh, resources available there, they're, they're there for uh, you to access for free. Um, and uh, I want to just alert you to the fact that the live internet studies that we're conducting now, let me just scroll down into the page and give you the logistics. We meet every week. Of course, today's date is October 17th, 2020, the date of the recording that you're, uh, those of you who are with me in the live class right now are experiencing. Um, and we have two segments to our th- uh, to our hour-long study. Segment one, 30 minutes. We are studying through the book of Romans only through chapter 14, and the commentary that I'm using is one that I put together available on my site. It's called Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food. Oh, my. We're in part 32 tonight. We took a two-week break because of the festivals, because of fall holidays. And so we've got to do just a little bit of catch-up tonight, kind of review. And then the second 30-minute segment that we go through is called Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 49 tonight. And again, we'll be finishing up a little segment there. And so we've been looking at the book of John and a passage there where it talks about Yeshua. We've got a featured YouTube video tonight. And because of our proximity to the um, festivals, we'll just finish up with a festival-related video from my so- uh, short question, short answer live series that I did a few years ago. Um, the question is, how did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish feasts? I think that's actually one of the very first videos. So you'll see like an older video that I put together. So those are the videos. that will. That's the video we'll be watching tonight. If you're interested in joining my live Skype classes every Saturday night. You simply need to get Skype on either a desktop, laptop, smartphone, iPhone, iPad, smartwatch, whatever it is you prefer. And if you've got a Skype account, that's even a bonus. Although I think if you have a desktop or laptop computer, I think as long as you have the Skype link, then it'll connect you to my Skype class. You don't even need a Skype app installed and you don't need a a Skype account, in case you're wondering. Your browser will do all the work. But the, the group link is what you're going to need, and I'd be more than happy to share that with you. The way you can get it is get a hold of my email address somehow, and probably one of the easiest ways would be to go to my website at uh, Tate and scroll to the very bottom, and down there, there's a little button that looks like an envelope. If you click it, it's the email Send me an email, tell me you're interested in joining the live Skype classes, and I'd be more than happy to share the Skype link with you. And then as I always mention while you're down there, if you'll notice, there's a little yellow donate button. I I really appreciate the support and the, the, the prayers uh, that all of you have been sharing with me and providing as the Lord is blessing you. You're blessing me. I know these are difficult times for everyone um, and uh, currently I'm still uh, uh, unemployed and looking for employment out here in South Korea. But uh, if the Lord is laying it on your heart to bless my ministry, well then here's an opportunity that you can take a Uh, take advantage of, just click on the donate button and you can donate using a credit card securely through PayPal, okay? Alright, without further ado, let's jump into the liturgy for tonight. Uh, We're going to use the same liturgy that we used uh, two weeks ago, Um, and this will close out our um, look at the, uh, our interaction with the festivals around this time of year. We're in the fall feasts, and we just finished them. We just came through the last um, three fall feasts of the year. Um, and so let's use Leviticus 23, just the first four verses again real quick. This is the same liturgy we used two weeks ago, so it should be familiar for those of you who watched the, uh, the YouTube videos from a few weeks back. Uh, I'm going to be reading From BibleHub.com's Interlinear Tool, Parallel Bible Tool, I've got English Standard Version pulled up over on the left side of my screen, and Hebrew Study Bible pulled up on the right side of the screen. So let me read the English for you over there, and then I'll read the uh, Hebrew for you on the right side of the screen, okay? All right. Uh, uh, This is Leviticus chapter 23, just verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And then verse 4, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocation, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed, for them, as I always mention when I read these passages to those who are following along my studies, the thing that we um, modern Christians unfortunately often leave out when we're looking at these verses, if we're reading them at all, um, is that we forget that these are ver- these are uh, the Lord's feasts. In other words, there's a common misunderstanding that these are festivals of the Jews, that they belong to Israel, and therefore, if I, a Gentile Christian, wish to investigate these festivals well then first i either have to navigate through becoming jewish or conversion or this is a barrier that stops me from say participating in the festivals even if i want to i can't do that because they're for israel they're for jews and i'm not israel i'm not jewish i'm part of the church i'm gentile and so it becomes a a common commonly spoken of barrier it's this jewish identity thing but I'm Jewish, and I'm here to tell you, uh, these are not festivals of the Jews. We don't own these. Uh, They're not owned by us. They're managed by us. They're they're certainly, and sometimes, unfortunately, micromanaged by us. I'm speaking as a Jewish person, as a a fellow Israelite. But these belong to God. And so if you name the name of God through Messiah Yeshua, through Jesus, if God is your God, the same God that I worship, then these festivals are for you, too. Because they're God's feasts. He says, these are mine, right? These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. So, let's go back over and look at the, uh, the Hebrew real quick. I'll just read these first four verses for you, starting with verse 1. Just remember, Hebrew reads right to left. So, we'll start on the right side of the screen. Get out of there. All right. Uh, verse 1 says, Verse 2 says, Verse 2 kodesh." e lechem mo dai verse 3 says sheshit yamim tase malakhu veyom hashevi Shabbat, Shabbaton, Mikra Kodesh, Ko Malacha, Lota su Shabbat Hila donay and the final pasuk, the final verse, verse four says, Ele Moed Adonai Mikra E Kodesh Asher Tikruu Otam B'Moadam, and again, go back and look at the English and just remind yourself again, these are the feasts of the Lord. God is my God, and as uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, is He the God of the Jews only? No, he's a God of Gentiles as well, near the very end of chapter 3, I think around verse 28, 29, 30, 31, somewhere around there. So if God is your God and Yeshua is your Lord, then these festivals are for you. So if you want to join in the celebration, then feel free to. These festivals are for you. In fact, now let's turn to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to find Apostle Paul actually commanding Gentile Christians, along with the Jews who were uh, reading his letters as well, he's actually going to enjoin them, that is to say invite them with a strong imperative, to actually keep the feast. And the feast in question that we're going to read about here in 1 Corinthians is actually the Passover, the Pesach. So let's read this. This is really, when my experience, one clear example of a New Testament verse where the New Testament actually commands Gentile Christians to actually keep a part of the Torah that many feel are actually reserved either for the Jewish people or they've been done away with, set aside, relaxed, and Jesus, fulfilled by Jesus, so we don't have to do them something like that, right? Not under the law, but under 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 grace or something. The way we understand those passages. But here's Paul telling the Corinthians keep the feast. So let's read this. 1 Corinthians, this, this this isn't the only place you're going to find this type of implication, but here it's very clear. It's just in my understanding of this passage, just kind of black and white. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm just going to read four verses. No, let's just read three verses. Um, we're breaking into context, but you can go back and read the passage on your own someday. But Just for our liturgy, just three verses. Let's start in verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven." Leavens the whole lump. I started with that verse because the the, the um, imagery of leaven is um um remembering is um um reminds us of an Old Testament feast called the feast of unleavened bread. And of course, some of you who've studied your Bible very carefully are familiar with that. So Paul's going to bring in this imagery of leaven and how that leaven is a type and shadow of sin, a picture of sin. So little leaven leavens the whole lump. Then he continues in verse seven: cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Notice he even uses the same phraseology that we're familiar with from uh, the Tanakh, from the Torah, from Old Testament uh, festivals, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is connected to Passover. He says, for Christ our Passover lamb, there we have it, has been sacrificed. So notice the type in shadow. Jesus is the the fullness of what the Old Testament was pointing towards. And then Paul comes from that that typology and from that that reference of, of um, leavening and Passover, and he jumps right into the very next admonition in verse 8. He says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, truthfully, he could have been talking about Easter here. I don't think he's talking about Easter because historically it's probably a little too early for this to be an Easter discussion. According to the the history that I'm Uh, study that I've studied, uh, he's talking about Passover. And yet he's explaining this to a group of predominantly Gentile Christians. There would have been Jewish believers in his letters within the purview of his readership as well. But predominantly, we're talking about in Corinth, uh, a group of former pagans and former former heathens, as we would call it, but now have been brought into relationship with God, uh, been brought into relationship with Messiah, Yeshua. So there we have it. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. So whoever said the New Testament didn't command or invite uh, Gentile Christians not to keep parts of the Torah. Here we have it. Let's go back and read the Greek on the um, right side of the page, starting right there uh, with the Greek. Uh, and this is the SBLGNT version of the Greek uh, S- Society of Biblical Literature's Greek New Testament. Uh, the Greek says "ou kalanta kalkeima himon ouk oidete hati mikra zume halanta Verse seven says tain palayan hine, eta." Neon Furama Kathos Este Adzumoi Gar Kai Garata Pasca Himon Etuthe christos And then the final verse verse eight says Hoste Herotadzumin me in Zume Palaya made in Zume Kias chi poinas. I'm sorry ah uh, yeah uh poinerias al en ads And that'll be the liturgy for tonight. I always encourage you to go back and study the portion on your own. Go back and read through the passage and um, pray about the the passage that we looked at. Meditate on it. Chew on it. Look up the different um, root words. Do your own little mini-study. Get to a point where the certain truths of the Bible you latch onto, you hold onto, because you have studied it out, and because the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has revealed it to you. Not because some clever Torah teacher on the internet or on YouTube who rattled off the Hebrew and the Greek said that this is what it means. Don't be uh, foolish in your Bible study. Go back and do the research on your own. Let the Holy Spirit reveal it to you and and uh, begin, begin to own certain passages because um, you know that you know that you know that this is what they refer to. So that's just my um, suggestion. All right, let's turn now to the short little video uh, that we're going to watch for tonight. And this is entitled, How Did Jesus Fulfill the Meanings of the Jewish Feast? I think this is one of the very first um, uh. Videos that I put together in this field, so it's probably going to look a little hokey in my opinion. But just bear with me. This one's a little longer too. I think it's yeah, it's 11 minutes long. So just sit back, uh, watch the video, and uh, after the video's over, um, I'll talk about my YouTube channel where you can watch other videos as well. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The feasts of the Lord, and it's important to recognize that they're His feasts, not the Jewish feasts. They're dress rehearsals of Messianic redemption. How did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish feasts? Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Historically, the nation of Israel was to act as a repository of the wisdom and word of Hashem that is God with his called out ones acting as a fishbowl the surrounding nations were to learn about the Creator the one true God of the universe from the everyday activities of the offspring of Abraham Abraham this And my answer is one of the primary reasons that the Torah, the law, was graciously given to Israel in the first place. In both biblical and modern Hebrew, the word for appointment that we read about in our liturgy um, is moed. And we heard that in the liturgy, moed, moedim. Right? These are the Moedim of the Lord. These are the appointments of the Lord. And this is translated as designated times in David Stern's Jewish New Testament or, or complete Jewish Bible version of the Bible, his translation that many of you have. Many Messianics like that particular translation, designated times. Interestingly, the root of the related word for Moed, kind of a sister word is Mikra, and it's translated as Convocations by David H. Stern in the same Bible. The root word of the the root of Mikra is the word Kara, and this word conveys the sense of rehearsal. I like to think of that in this way Hashem that is God masterfully designed the Mikra E Kodesh, the holy convocations, to act as sort of dress rehearsals for His children. Now, naturally, you should ask yourself, of what? The Feasts of the Lord, and it's important to recognize that they're His Feasts, not the Jewish Feasts, they're dress rehearsals of Messianic Redemption. Our Lord Yeshua, Jesus, has literally and prophetically fulfilled the first four of the seven feasts that we read about in Leviticus 23. We didn't read the entire chapter there, but I encourage you to go back and read that on your own. It's my belief that the Torah teaches that he will likewise literally and prophetically fulfill the final three at his soon-to-be second arrival. As the children of Abraham willingly and faithfully lived out Hashem's yearly cycle of moedim, of festivals, of of, um, calendar dates, the Spirit of the Holy One graciously opened their hearts to understand that as his treasured possession, they were responsible to actively pursue a genuine, personal, loving relationship, that Hashem has always desired from the nation of Israel and through the grace poured out to Israel the surrounding Gentile nations might also see the goodness and the mercy of Adonai and seek to become one of his treasured possessions as well. Today our covenant responsibilities to our Holy God have not changed any more than the covenants made with his treasured people have changed, right? Our God is an unchanging God, and his covenants don't change, and he doesn't change. Therefore, because his covenants don't change, his promises don't change, then our responsibility to these covenants doesn't change either. He is our God, and we are his people. He hasn't changed his mind about who he is. He hasn't changed his mind about who we are. Therefore, we shouldn't change our minds about who he is, and we shouldn't change our minds about what his word says. Alright? History has demonstrated, we're right here uh, for those of you who are following along with my YouTube channel right now, history has demonstrated that in the fullness of of Hashem's timetable, He sent His only begotten Son, Yeshua, into the world to redeem fallen man. This is the Messianic redemptive history that the festivals portray. Okay, um, Yeshua came into the world to redeem fallen man and to make it possible to have a right relationship with our heavenly Abba. This Messianic redemption of ours which was accomplished through the sacrificial death, the burial, the miraculous resurrection of Yeshua, our Savior, has been prophetically and historically displayed through the teachings of the Holy Convocations of Leviticus 23. There it is for us. The festivals demonstrate how God will will draw people unto himself and save them. The festivals are signposts. The festivals are... The most accurate and complete description of the messianic redemption that we have next to the gospels themselves. Before the gospels were presented for us, written down for us today, um, what Israel had for them was the witness of the scriptures. It is therefore Hashem's desire, I go on to say my answer, that these teachings, right, the scriptures, the whole Bible, particularly the Old Testament that Israel had before there was what we now call the New Testament. These teachings were to become an integral part of their everyday life and they are to become an integral, integral part of our everyday lives as well. And the way we make these a part of our lives is as we walk out the truths of our new identification in Messiah. Does that make sense? The Bible was meant to be lived out. It's a, it's, a, it's a description of the blueprint of our everyday living, and this includes the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. To be sure, I say in my writings, the Torah has demonstrated, and here's our quote from the book of Luke again, quote, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Tanakh, that is to say the Old Testament, so they could understand the scriptures. That's Luke 24:45, as rendered out of David Stern's complete Jewish Bible. The time has now come for all of God's children, both Jew and Gentile, to begin to have, in my opinion, a unified voice when it comes to the Torah. Now we're going to get a little bit apologetic. The the historic Christian position has been that uh, we're Gentiles Christians, we no longer have to walk out these particular festivals on an everyday basis. Those were for the Jews. They were given to Israel. They were for a different dispensation, a different era. Uh, We now live in the dispensation of grace. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We walk by the law of Christ, um, something like that. For too long, the olive tree has been divided, the Jew and Gentile, in the the, uh, remnant of Israel. Uh, and greater Israel as well. We've been divided over this issue of, quote, who should follow the Torah and why? Whose law is it? Who has the responsibility? I think that this is uh, an authoritative answer that we as Messianics can kind of run with. The Torah actually details the lifestyle of a genuine follower of Hashem as correctly interpreted, that is to say fulfilled, by Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. When in doubt, look to the rabbi. If you have a question about what the Torah says or how it should be implemented, look to the rabbi, capital R. You don't always have to go to Rashi or Ramban or turn to turn to Rabbinic Judaism today if you want to understand the Torah. Just turn to your New Testament, and that'll help you understand your Old Testament. Okay? If you want to understand the Old, then turn to the New. If you want to understand the New, then turn to the Old. They work hand in hand. And in fact, take that little page that's in the middle of your Old and New and rip that thing out. That doesn't belong there anyway. It's one unified Teaching in one unified body of instruction to God's people. Omain, Omain, let's keep reading my answer here. I say that this means that all genuine believers, right, both Jew and Gentile, have been given, watch this, a divine covenant responsibility. I didn't mention invitation there. I think we've been given a divine covenant responsibility, as it were, to follow as much of God's word that is what some people call the older testament and, and the newer testament. The older the Elder Testament, I heard one pastor call it the Elder Testament. Uh the older testament I don't like that word old testament at all, so that's why I put the word older in there in, in quotes. But we're we really should have the responsibility to follow as much of god 's word as, as we can press into uh, as much as we can take on as much as as we can and seek to understand um, don 't overload yourself right don 't stress yourself out trying to to walk into the six hundred and thirteen all at once right all the torah can 't be done in one day but as much as you can press into, I go on to say that this should be empowered by, not the flesh, but of course, it should be empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. He is the one who empowers us to walk into the Torah, to walk into the festivals that we're reading about in Leviticus chapter 23, etc., etc. So in closing, in closing, as we looked at this question of how did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish festivals, uh, my last paragraph says it this way. Ultimately, it is my wish as a Torah teacher, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, uh, it's my wish to invite both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah to press into the covenant responsibilities and expectations of Hashem's divine mandate. I use that phrase again. I'm emphasizing this. Hashem's divine mandate to participate each year in His feasts. How did Jesus fulfill them? He walked into the historic reality of what the festivals were describing and what they were anticipating when the Torah was given way back in the times of Moshe. And with that, let's draw our commentary to a close. Uh, I encourage you to... Uh, subscribe, hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel here. I think it should be showing up on the screen there. And subscribe to my YouTube channel. That way you can uh, uh, pick up the other studies and follow along. If you're um, listening to this audio podcast by way of iTunes, uh, I also encourage you to subscribe to my iTunes podcast. And that way you won't miss any of the studies as they're, as they're brought to you, okay? <music> All right, that'll do it for the short little video, short if you think 11 minutes is short. And I just want to uh, let all the students know that um, you can access all of my YouTube videos from my YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Torah ministries and you're seeing right now i've got my channel pulled up on the screen and uh from there i park all of my videos that i upload to youtube week after week um and I've got various uh, playlists uh, and various featured videos uh, that you can follow along with, whatever topics, if you're interested in Pauling topics, I've got a whole section for those, um, kind of short inspirational minute or two with the word. I've got a Hebrews Unplugged uh, study uh, from the book of Hebrews as well. I've got Tor Observant Shomer Mitzvot, a series that covers different uh, uh, topics that are interesting, or of relevance to the Messianic community. I've got, of course, a Holy Festival, Holy Convocations, Feast of the Lords series. And then the other playlists would include um, uh, uh, commentaries to all the, the weekly Torah portions, all 54 of them, as well as a brand new... Um, uh, playlist that I started up this week, which is highlights, a portion of the portion highlights from my Torah commentary. And if you want to see the videos in the order that I upload them, click on the video tab and um, make sure it's sorted by uh, date, by, by uh, date added newest. And then you can see uh, the videos there that I upload and uh, access them from there, download them, share them. I always encourage you to, of course, subscribe to my YouTube channel. That'll keep you in the in the loop as to when I'm uploading new videos and things like that but you have to make sure you hit the little bell for notifications and that way you'll be notified once I upload each new video I also encourage uh, people to um Hit the little like button if you like what I'm uh, uh, producing, uh, and, and it's been a blessing to you. Hit that little like, uh, little thumbs up guy. And then lastly, don't forget to share. Right, sharing is caring. Is that what they say? Um, uh, share the videos with your friends and family members and people that you think, hey, uh, this video had something interesting. It made me stop and think, and um, I think it's worth viewing. So that's gonna do it for my plug for my YouTube channel. All right, let's open up. Uh, Let's see, we want to open a new window, yeah. Let's turn to the Romans 14 part of our study. Now this is um, Romans 14, unplugged feasts and fasts and food, oh my. And uh, since we've been on a two-week break, some of what we're going to be talking about tonight will be um, review. Uh, remember, I've got a commentary that's available at my website at tetzetorah.com. And from the top of my website, there is a cluster of links there. And you can see the uh, the Romans 14 is right there. If you click on it, it'll bring you to this page. And you can scroll down into the commentary. There's a written version um, that is available. And um, I'm creating the YouTube videos uh, as we go along. In fact, this video that we're... Uh, I'm creating that video that you're watching right now is part of the creation. So um, if you're interested in watching uh, the videos, you'll have to go over to my um, uh, YouTube channel and catch them there, or you can watch them from my website here uh, if you click on the... um, Where is it? The uh, YouTube videos right there. There's a link that has all the videos parked on one page as well. You can watch them straight from my website. All right, but let's jump now into the study. Let me just um, give you kind of the overview for those of you either new to the study or we've been on a two-week break. Your mind's been on the festivals and you can't remember what uh, tour teacher Ariel's been talking about for the last, I don't know, several months. What's going on with Romans 14 Unplugged? In a nutshell, basically, I have come to understand that the prevailing, preferred, popular Christian perspective on Romans 14 is a passage where Paul is admonishing Christians and Jews, but mostly Christians, uh, Gentile Christians, to settle their differences with one another. And in this settlement, we have... um, messianic jews this is according to the popular christian position we have messianic jews who are still trying to hold on to a torah-based lifestyle even after coming to faith in jesus as messiah so they want to keep torah but the gentile christians in paul's readership they haven't come from a Torah-based lifestyle. This is according to Christian commentaries that I read, that you can pick up uh, in the Christian bookstore or read online or things like that, or you listen to your your average uh, sermon that's taught in a Christian church. This is the perspective I'm describing. And so because there are these differences, sharp differences, that sometimes divide one another, Paul wants the two groups to come together and stop quarreling and judging one another. But what this means is that um, the Gentile Christian a uh, group which is referred to as the strong they uh need to understand that they're no longer really obligated to keep any um any semblance of, of obedience to Torah anyway. They're working from this understanding that the law has been set aside now that Jesus has come. Um, to use uh, Paul's own terminology, we're not under the law, we're under grace, like he says uh, earlier in Romans. And uh, borrowing from the themes that are found in the book of Galatians, we find that it's not the works of the law that can save anyone. It's, it's only faith in Messiah. And so therefore, using Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law. And so our our, our standard and cr- traditional historical uh, understanding of this passage and Paul's writings as a whole leads us to a conclusion that um, even though there are people in the world who are named Messianic Jews or Messianic communities, Messianic Jews and Gentiles, and they claim that keeping Torah is something that's relevant for them, we in mainstream Christianity, evangelical Christianity, Catholic Christianity, uh, uh, Orthodox Greek Christianity, and all of the varying denominations that are found around the world, predominantly the viewpoint that we have been handed and that we've come to understand is that the law is not something that we need concern ourselves with, at least not the, the, um, the, um, Uh, Ceremonial and the civil. We of course still hold to the moral, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, those types of things, we hold to those. But ceremonies such as Sabbaths, keeping kosher, um, you know, wearing tzitzit, putting mezuzah on your door, walking in the festivals, um, all of those other uh, ceremonial type things, those are really either for Jews only that is to say Israel, or they've been fulfilled by Jesus so that we don't have to do them. They, they were shadows pointing to something that was greater. And so to move into all of that is to go backwards in our faith. And so that's kind of the, um, you could say, the approach that we, uh, that we um, enter into the discussion here at Romans 14 with, from a traditional Christian perspective. The weak in faith that Paul talks about, let me just jump, if you look at the first verse, in Romans 14 it says, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Um, the person who's weak in faith, the the astenunta te piste, as we see here in the Greek, right? We could read this here. de astenunta te piste pras me dia Paul is talking about these people who are weak in their faith, astonunta te piste, and the traditional Christian perspective is that the weak in faith is the messianic Jewish element or con- constituency within our largely Gentile Christian churches. I'm talking about first century um, uh, congregations, by the way. And um, these Jewish people, they love Yeshua, they love God, but they still have this proclivity and preference for keeping Torah. And so what do we do with them? And perhaps maybe it's because they're weak in in their their experience with Jesus, right? They're baby Christians, as we would call it today. Or it could be that that they're just so used to keeping the Torah, because that's how they're raised, is choose to keep Torah. And so um, the bottom line is we who are strong, right, the uh, strong Christians, we need to kind of um, make um, concessions for the weak in faith and are in our group, but we know that we ourselves don't have to follow after those. So you got, are you understanding more or less the um, the background that we typically approach this passage with? And this sounds very um cordial sounds very accommodating it sounds very convincing to be honest with you but as a messianic jew let me just tell you my understanding of the passage and then we'll jump right into my study and this is based on my own study along with others i'm not the only one who holds this perspective that i'm about to describe to you it's held by other many well-meaning christians in 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 communities today but the overview is that Firstly, my understanding of this passage is that the weak in faith are not actually Messianic Jews. They're actually non-Christ-believing Jews. They are Jewish. But they are Jews who have been raised with a faith in God and a loyalty to Torah, but they haven't yet become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that they read about in their Tanakh. So they're in dialogue with Christians, with Gentile Christians, in their communities um, you remember the gentile christians were visiting the synagogues You go back and read through the book of acts uh, and paul certainly spoke in this the the, uh, the synagogues of his day and, you know this is before the the hard break between judaism and christianity that we had in the following centuries so in in paul's day we still had a lot of um interaction between the jewish community and the christian community but the weak in faith in my understanding would have been jews who were weak in their faith in messiah but they were open to the idea they weren't hostile to it like Jewish people are today, like the anti-missionaries are poisoning their minds to turn away from Jesus of the Bible. Uh, the Jewish people in Paul's day, were many of them, not all of them, but many of them were open to the idea that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah that they study about. So I think they are the weak in faith. And the message that Paul's trying to get across, of course, yes, it's not to judge one another. That part is true. I'm just scrolling down to my um, passage uh, so we can get ready. Um Paul does not want them to judge one another, this is true, but at the same time, there's no, it's not necessary to insert into Paul's letter the assumption that Paul thought that the law was abrogated or uplifted or done away with or superseded by the law of Christ or something like that. Indeed, the the bulk of passages that Paul would have interacted with from the Tanakh and the theology that's carried along from the Torah, through the talk, and into the time period of the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament, would have given Paul the understanding that the law of Moses was not done away with in Jesus, but rather it was brought to a more sure footing. It was brought to a stronger application, but more on the inside than the outside. The focus wasn't so much external. Rather, the relationship with God had taken on a new meaning. Thus, there are numerous prophecies in the Tanakh that tell of corporate Israel one day accepting their Messiah, Yeshua, being brought into a right relationship with God, only to be turned around and being filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can actually walk out the Torah of Moshe the way they were supposed to walk out. So the, the radical change is not in the, the doing away of the Torah. The radical change in the New Testament is the change of the old man into the new man, the the regenerative birth of of Israel, of a Jewish person, so that rather than keeping the Torah superficially under his own power, he is now actually walking into the Torah as a spirit-filled Christian Jew, as a Christian, as a Messianic, as one empowered by the Spirit of God to be pleasing to God and to walk in newness of life and forgiveness of his fellow man. And so that's the perspective I believe that Paul would have been working from. What is more, Paul confesses his own... um, Uh, dependency and continued observance of Torah commandments, Um, his desire to keep festivals. uh, You know, he traveled in and around the diaspora areas, and when possible, he'd like to go back to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. Uh, And when he was asked about his position on on keeping the Torah, you know, Acts chapter 21, um, he can, he did, he showed, he demonstrated by his actions that he was a lifelong Torah keeper. He confessed that he's never done anything against his people or against the law of Moses or against the customs of his people, and so he's not a lawbreaker. He's a law keeper, and so we need to really rethink the way we have cast Paul for the last 1,900, two thousand years or so. And and thankfully, there are many communities around the world, Christian and Jewish that are rethinking Paul, giving him his own voice once again, and beginning to realize that Paul didn't have anything bad to say about Torah observance, per se. He had bad things to say about legalism, and he had bad things to say about what we, what we term nationalism, or what I like to term ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. The idea that the Torah is for Jews only, and that my Jewish identity is what brings me into a relationship with God. And so Paul had bad things to say about that perspective of the Bible, but he really had nothing bad to say about keeping the Torah from a spirit-led position, as long as you're understanding that uh, it's not your Torah keeping that's saving you or earning you brownie points before God or anything like that. So, uh, And he also um, went to great lengths to explain that the Torah is not a Jewish-exclusive document. It's not for Jews only. It was given to Israel to caretake, to safeguard it but it was meant to be shared with uh, anyone who would join themselves and, and become part of remnant Israel and join themselves to Israel at the remnant level, thus taking on the the covenant relationship of, of um, the body of Messiah, a.k.a. the remnant of Israel. Remember, and I'll say this before, uh, and then I'll just jump right into my study, in order to understand the Scriptures better, <clears throat> from Paul's perspective, Israel is comprised of Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. It's also... Um, still comprised of unbelieving jews but that's the national israel part that Paul's seeking to witness to and bring into a relationship through yeshua into relationship with god one day so we'll talk about that as time goes on but for those of you who have just joined me in my studies or are just picking up where i left off let's turn now to romans 14 um we've been really looking at just verses two through four Let me just uh, conclude with where we were going with that. Let me see. Did I lose mine now? All right. So um, let me read um, just two through four of those verses, and then we'll jump into Tim Haig's commentary. He's a messianic Jewish author that we've been borrowing the notes from. Um, And the question we've been asking for this section, and we will finish this section tonight so that we can jump down into the next question. Are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? We'll start that next week. And that covers verses 5 through 9 of Romans 14. But for now, the question is, what is the contrast between anything and vegetables? Um, uh, uh, in uh, On my screen right now, you see I've got the ESV over on the left and the SBLGNT on the right. And uh, the English says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person, right? Remember, the, the, the weak is this same person that we read in verse 1, this astenon. We're going to see it here, uh, right here in the Greek. Uh, one person believes he made anything, while the weak person, right? We've been asking, who is the weak person and what is the contrast between anything and vegetables? Does he mean anything as in we can eat? Anything non kosher? Does he mean it's okay to eat pork? Does he, does Paul mean now that it's okay to eat shellfish, shrimp, lobster, crabs, clams, octopus, squid, mouse, uh, tarantula, you know, camel, whatever you want to eat, giraffe? Ah, just trying to trick you there. Giraffe is actually kosher. But all the other things I just mentioned aren't. So what does he mean by anything? Or is he talking about, um, anything that uh, the Torah prescribes, right? Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14. So um, that's really uh, what we've been looking at. And we've been using a little bit of the Greek uh, to see. Hasmen fagin pantah de astenon la kante estia" is what it says in the Greek right there, verse 2. Let not the one, in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on on the one who eats for God has welcomed him ha estion tan me estianta me estioneto ha de me estion tan estianta me crineto ha tetos god al ton pracilabato that's the Greek over on the right side of the screen. And then verse four says uh, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another right so we got the two people judging one another it's before his own master that he sends or falls and he will be upheld for the lord is able to make him stand regardless of whether you're eating um things which which the torah prescribes or you're only keeping a vegetarian diet god is going to accept you one way or the other, the Greek says "soutis e hagrinon, alatrion oikatine ta idio kurio, stake e pipte stathe se de de dunete gar haguria stese alton." And when we turn to Tim Hegg's commentary, we're going to see that there's um some Greek that uh, bears relevance as we look at it maybe we can better understand who the weak person are, who these weak people are, and uh, what's the contrast between anything and the vegetables. And we looked at two weeks ago, you'll have to go back and listen to show number 112 um, in the previous shows. Um, I believe that the contrast here is not between a kosher diet versus a vegetarian diet, I don't think that's what Paul's referring to. I think instead what he's trying to challenge us with is that the Torah outlines what is acceptable for food and what's not acceptable for consumption of food in Leviticus chapter 11, as well as there's a smaller repetitive list in Deuteronomy chapter 14, but uh, Leviticus 11 is the major kosher or cashew listing. And Paul would have upheld that list. So when he says anything here in the Greek or in the English, he's not talking about anything that you can put into your mouth. He's actually, and let's turn to Tim Haig now, and so we can see this. He's actually talking about um, something that would have been acceptable from a Torah-based standard, but you're choosing to launch into a vegetarian diet. So let's look at some of this. Tim Haig talked about this. We picked up this commentary last week. Um... I don't think I need to read all of this, but uh, we are going to finish these last two paragraphs. But last week, uh, let me just read maybe this last uh, sentence here. Um, Let me start right there. Paul uh, Paul says, this is Tim Haig, while Paul clearly taught the need to establish the Torah, Right. remember Romans 3.31, he was not concerned to establish all the rulings of certain sages, even if they did represent the majority opinion. He was no doubt concerned that such a position would hinder the inclusion of the non-Jews as they strove to become full-fledged participants in the Jewish community of faith. So um, from Paul's perspective, he, he believes that both Jew and Gentile in his day should receive Torah. They should be walking into Torah. They should be keeping Torah but number one, not to, not for the purpose of being saved, not for the purpose of earning brownie points, not for the purpose of showing that you're a better ethnic group than the other, or anything like that. Torah simply defines the, um, the lifestyle of redeemed covenant community member. It's the blueprint for living. It's the right way in which to walk out your lifestyle because God deems uh, this the right way to live. And the Torah being a document that is um, uh, written for Jews and Gentiles who are in covenant with God, or anyone who's in covenant with God, then it becomes a document that's available for Jews to keep, as well as Gentiles to keep. So he doesn't have to uproot Torah in order for him to admonish uh, those who are keeping a a vegetarian diet versus those who are not vegetarian uh, to stop quarreling with one another. Tameh goes on to conclude in this paragraph starting right here, one should also note how the two parties, you know, the Jews and Gentiles in this passage, are described in these verses by the Apostle. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but one who is weak eats vegetables only. Here, those willing to eat meat, that is all things, right, those who are not vegetarian, are described as having faith. And the Greek says, Literally, Tim Hague says this would be described as, on the one hand, he who is believing to eat all things, while in comparison, the phrase, those who are weak, the ha de astenon, which uh, reminds us of what we read about, um, earlier in verse one, the weak in faith, the ton de estenunta tepiste, this must be understood as referring to the same people. So verse one and verse two are the same crowd, even though he doesn't use the same Greek, right? He leaves off some phrases. In verse one he calls them weak in faith, right? The full Greek phrase ha de ast I'm sorry, ton de astonanta tepiste, the weak the one who are the ones who are weak in faith. But in verse two, he kind of uses shorthand. He says the ones who are weak, right? He leaves off the, the 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 part about weak and faith, but by context we see they're the same people. That's the point that Tim Higgs trying to bring up. But also notice that in the Greek, uh, what's interesting, Higgs says, is that he who is believing, right, the the group that are strong, incorporates what we call in Greek a present indicative um, present indicative verb, while the weak uses a different type of verb known as a participle. And remember, um, in case you're not versed in Greek. Um, the uh, uh... the greek language has many different moods and tenses and things like that and uh voices and it's a little more elastic than I think the the mer- the, the English uh, or even the the Hebrew but in the different tenses that we find in greek the present tense is one of the more popular tenses that we find throughout the new testament it's, it's the predominant uh, verb tense that's used and it simply means just like it sounds present tense it's something that's either continuous or it's ongoing sometimes it's undefined but it it's continually present um uh the continuous present uh can be um defined as kind of using a participle like it's ongoing ing, uh you know, walking or standing or st- uh eating or speaking or something like that. And so or believing like in this verse. And when we bring in the um uh the indicative uh mood, uh the indicative simply brings in a an aspect of the verb that conveys um uh, something that is uh, certain, something that is sure. Uh, it, it indicates, um, as the name sounds, indicative. And so I said all that to say um, it's, it's the only uh, verb that can, can actually um, give a designation of time of all the other moods, the subjunctive, the optative, the imperative, and things like that, the four different moods. And so Paul's simply using one of the more popular moods to indicate, as Tim Haig says, Uh, perhaps the reality that this is who you are in Messiah. You are those who have faith. As Tim Haig says, what might this suggest, it could be that the use of the present indicative points to a specific, or at the top of the page here, specific confession of faith, i.e. confessing Yeshua as Messiah. The, The strong, they are presently indicated by their believing in Jesus, that's what we might say by the present indicative verb there. While the participle of the weak in faith, right? This sounds kind of faith, strong, uh, odd because it's not a present indicative; it's a participle. It describes a present characteristic, right? The ing participle, but it is a different type of verb. It perhaps points to a condition of weakness which the apostle considers to be current. Notice it's got an ING aspect to it, but it's not necessarily permanent. That is to say, um, the comparison is, Paul would describe believers as currently believers, presently believers, right? Present indicative. But this is something that doesn't change. Their state of being saved doesn't fluctuate, right? It doesn't change from day to day. It's something that took place at a definitive time in their history, in their past, and they are presently still in a state of being saved, present, uh, present indicative. But by comparison, by simply using a, a, a lesser type of verb, the 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 um the indicative, uh, the participle. I'm sorry for the weak in faith. Um, he's uh, uh, perhaps allowing, from a technical perspective, allowing for the weak in faith to actually change their status from one day to the next. So so presently they're weak. Remember, I think weak means undecided when it comes to who Jesus is. So presently, they're weak. They're undecided as to Jesus being the Messiah. But that could change as they continue to dialogue with Christians in their group and make a profession of faith. So presently, they're weak, but they don't have to stay weak. So uh, currently weak, but not necessarily permanent. Those weak in faith were viewed, make says, by the apostles, those still in the process of declaring their faith in Yeshua. Um, I think we'll stop right there with Tim Hague's commentary, because I don't want to get too technical, but the bottom line is um, there's a there are other ways to interpret this passage, and we certainly have the Greek uh, um, to support other perspectives for, of this passage. We don't always have to default and say that the weak in faith are those who keep Torah, as if keeping Torah as a Christian is a sign of weakness. That's really, as I mentioned, the, the prevailing Christian perspective that doesn't sit too well with many Messing of Jews, myself included, although I'm not openly offended i'm just um wondering how we can arrive at the perspective given the preponderance of 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 scriptures in the Tanakh that teach that uh, keeping torah as one filled with the spirit is a sign of strength and a sign of weaknesses not a sign of weakness uh, paul himself considers he's considered one of the strong right read Romans 15 1. he is one of the strong yet he kept torah um and the the prophecies point towards uh, uh uh, Israel keeping Torah one day as they're filled with the Spirit. So to describe a person as weak because they believe in Jesus plus Torah is a very, um, in my opinion, it's a very weak argument, pun intended. All right, having said all that, let's turn now to our second uh, study for the next uh Last, say, five or ten minutes of our study. We'll keep it short tonight. Um, this is Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. and This uh, study is available on my website as well. Again, go to tatezetorah.com and from the home page or any pages, right at the very top of the cluster of links, click on the link that says Discussions on the Issues of Trinity right there. And this paper is a bit longer. It's Intended to be three parts, one, two, and three, pun intended there, Trinity study. And uh, we're in paper two. All of the uh, videos that are attached to this study are right at the very beginning, so all of the media is there. Scroll down past all of the YouTube thumbnails. Scroll down past all of the um, podcasts and uh, the audios, and you can jump into the written study. There's also a PDF version if you'd like to print it and and keep all the formatting. Uh, It's available there. And so we're in uh, paper two. Uh, of this particular study where we're talking specifically about um, Yahweh and Yeshua. We're looking at the um, challenges that face us as Christians and as Messianics of how can we say that Jesus is God, but at the same time Jesus is fully human, right? The whole hypostatic union discussion all over again. Uh, what about all of the Unitarians out there? What about all the Oneness Pentecostals, right? What about all of the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons? What about all the Iglesia uh, Christodelfa and Iglesia Iglesia? I can't remember their name. Um, um, the 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 groups out there that don't hold to the idea that Jesus is very God veiled in flesh. What do we do with that theology? And so part of most of this is very apologetic in nature. So what we've been looking at are um. Uh, passages out of the New Testament, and specifically we're still focused on John. We're going to conclude this tonight, by the way. Uh, John 1.1 is one of the favorite passages of Trinitarians, such as myself, who hold to the belief that Jesus is very God veiled in flesh. Let me just state it right up front in case you misunderstand my position. I am a Messianic Jew. I hold to a belief that there's only one God, but I also hold to a belief that Jesus, Yeshua, is 100% human, but at the same time, he is 100% divine. He is very God-veiled in flesh. I don't completely understand how that's possible. But I believe it because I believe that the, the Bible teaches it. And so I'm not afraid of admitting the fact that, that I worship Jesus as very God. Now, this doesn't make him God the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. So we've all seen the little Trinity badge. I've probably got one on my screen right now on my post-production that you're looking at the you know Jesus is god uh, the son uh, the the uh, uh, the holy spirit is god and things like that and the father is god but uh, jesus is not the son is not the father and the holy spirit is not the son and and so um God is one what and three who's like Dr. James White is on of saying he's one God, but he's three persons. So I believe in the, the, the classic uh, Nicene Creed or Apostolic Creed or, or um, whatever creed that you're used to res- reciting in your church tradition. So John 1 tells us that at the beginning the word was with God and this word which was eternal with, with God was also very God himself. We looked at all of these um, possibilities of him being a God like the Jehovah's Witnesses talk about. Is Was he... Was he a God? Was he a lesser God? Was he a mini-God? Kind of like a mini-me, right? A a demigod? And we've come to the conclusion that that that's not the best way to view these passages. And within the context of John explaining that Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Word who was with God and was God, the Word which incarnated, John lets us know in verse... uh, 14, that this word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory as the only the only son from the Father. And this verse 14 um, is a verse that's translated in a few different ways. And uh, the ESV that I got pulled up talks about that Jesus is the only son from the Father. And yet, um, and it uses this Greek phrase, monogenous. And what we've discovered is that this phrase has been translated a few different ways, either translated as the, the one and only unique person, the unique one, or the one and only begotten. Based on previous uh, understandings of this phrase begotten, monogamous from the Greek word uh Jehovah's Witnesses and other uh, Oneness Pentecostal and other um, Unitarian-type groups come to the conclusion that Jesus is the one who was created by God. He's the one and only created one that was created by God. Thus, Jehovah's Witnesses say, the word became flesh and resided among us. And we had a view of his glory as a glory such as belongs to an only begotten son. And from their perspective, begotten refers to uh, the time when God created uh, Jesus. So let me see if I can find what they say um, in their uh, 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 commentary here. If I can find it, if I can't, uh, that's fine. But um, from their perspective, uh, Jesus was not, uh, he's not eternally God. He's not eternally God. He is the one who was, here we go. Um, let's see if I can highlight that one right there. Uh, the word's preeminent position as the firstborn son of God, through whom God created all of things as a basis for describing him as a God, a Godlike one divine or divine being. Um... He is the first one that God created, right? He is the the first of God's creation. Um, uh, he is the first creature that God created. In fact, they say that here. This title was applied to Jesus during His superior human existence, the Word, as a spirit creature. So they don't believe, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is eternal, um, but I disagree with the Jehovah's Witnesses, I disagree with the Oneness Pentecostals, I disagree with the the Christadelphos, I disagree with the the Christadelphians, I think or whatever they call called, the Iglesias, I'll remember, remember their name a little later, uh, and the other Unitarian positions that teach that Jesus is a lesser being than God. Uh, he's God-like is what they say, and he, he possesses God-like qualities, and he can even be worshipped as God because of his exaltation by God the Father, but he's not very God according to that position. I disagree with that position. So let's turn into the last 10 minutes Uh, to Tim Hague's commentary uh, on this passage, Romans, I'm sorry, on John 1.14, and we'll pick up um, his commentary that I've got pulled up for you on the screen, and we'll finish this tonight. Again, I apologize this is so technical for many of you, um, but there are those of us who need the technicalities, right? Not all of us want to just read the passage and go, okay, that's what my pastor says is true, so I guess that's what it must mean. Uh, If that works for you, I'm fine. Not trying to mock that if that 's the way you arrive at your truth i 'm fine with that, but that 's not the way some of us work, and i 'm one of those kind that just needs a little more more technicality so this is for those of you out there who think the way that I think you need to get just a little technical sometimes. Tim Haig talks about how that um uh, this phrase about Jesus being um begotten how it's rendered in f- different passages, right? This that's from that Greek word monogonese. The Greek r- original word is monoganase and this r- gives rise to the phrase monogonese. In this verse, it was from this verse and others that speak of Yeshua as begotten that the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son was formulated during the Christological debates of the early Christian centuries. He goes on to say that in this regard, Psalm 27 formed additional basis for the doctrine. I will uh, surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten thee. And so, um, uh, in short there were those who sought to interpret these texts as indicating a point in time at which Yeshua came into being, denying his eternal pre-existence, right? If John says that Jesus is the only begotten, just like we read in John 3.16, right, out of the KJV, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, this phrase monogonous, or monogenes, the original Greek, if Jesus is begotten, And the way that humans beget one another is to bring them into existence through the birthing process, right? Male and female get together and out comes a baby. That's begetful. If that's true, then perhaps Jesus was not eternal, existing with the Father is what some um, uh, fringe groups and some um, heretical groups and some different ways of, of understanding this passage. Perhaps maybe Jesus was brought into existence and God... "Quote unquote," birthed him. That is, to say, created him, and that's why he's the begotten son. That's why we're having this discussion. That's why it's relevant for us. Uh, just FYI, if we go over to um, uh, John, i sorry, Psalm 2, and look at it, uh, we can see. I've got Hebrew pulled up here, and I've got Greek pulled up here. And uh, in the in the Hebrew, there's a phrase right here, the uh, where the psalmist says, "I have." Uh, I have begotten you, uh, literally. I've the same, the, just the f- standard phrase for uh, for having children, right? Um, w- which is what uh, uh, in the English it says, I've fathered you, kind of, kind of a KJV rendering. But when we we can see from the Septuagint that there's a, a Greek word that's uh, used here, right down there, gignoigege um, necha, and this um, this phrase is rooted in the same word as monogamese. It's got the same genes part to it, um, which means begotten or how you bring children into the world. So it is true that the psalmist could have been using that, that phraseology that was common in that day to beget children. But um, let's let Tim Hague uh, explain what I think is a very strong uh, case that could be made as to how a better way to understand this. And then that'll close out our commentary for tonight, and we'll close in prayer. Okay, I think we're going just a little bit over in time. So... Speaking of begotten, that we read about in Psalm 2, that we read about in John uh, 1.14 and John 1.16 later on, and speaking of um, the phrase that shows up in John 3.16, this begotten, does it mean, the question that was before us tonight that we're going to answer hopefully, is does begotten mean that Jesus was created by God, that he was brought into existence by God, or does it refer to something else that was already present in the mind of the Hebrews, in the present in the mind of John as he worked through the Septuagint Greek, things like that, let's listen to Tim Hague. I think he's got an angle that's worth our listening to. Tim Hague says, uh, speaking about whether or not this is referring to um, Jesus being eternal or not, we call this a a study in ontology, right? How do we understand the nature of God? That's ontological nature. Tim Hague talks about how that, such ontological wrangling was not what the biblical authors had in mind. That's kind of a shocker right out of the gate, is that perhaps that's not even what um, John's referring to. It may not be what what God is talking about, the psalmist, in Psalm 2. He's not bringing in a debate as to whether Jesus was eternal or not when he says, today I have begotten thee. He's not talking about, let me explain to you, the psalmist. He's not trying to explain, hey, this is how Jesus' existence came to be. <laughs> it's not a discussion about ontology. Rather, and Tim Haig talks about, surely the desire of the Church Fathers to confess both the eternal and incarnational nature of Messiah is to be applauded, but the emphasis in the word monogonase is not so much ontological as it is relational, for it denotes a unique status and position which Yeshua has with the Father. Even as a son shares the same nature with his father, but has an identity distinct from him, so the use of monogonase denotes oneness with the Father, while at the same time maintaining their distinct identities. So Jesus is one with the Father, but yet he is his own person. Moreover, the use of begotten in Psalm 2.7 has clear covenant significance. We don't have to make it an ontological discussion. It has covenant significance, once again emphasizing relationship rather than ontological categories. So when we look at Psalm 2, where God says, through the mouth of the psalmist, you are my son, today I have begotten thee, a psalm that John in 1.14 would have been familiar with when he uses the same Greek word, same Greek phrase, monogenous or monogenes, that is the root, the root word, then both the writer to the book of Psalms as well as Um, uh, John, as well as the writer to the Hebrews, as we saw last two weeks ago, they don't have to be focusing on this ontological aspect of this phrase monogenes. Rather, the Hebraic aspect can simply entirely focus on the relational aspect of father-to-son and why this bears covenant significance for the person who is the recipient of being begotten, like in the book of Psalms, like the the the, the Davidic king. So, he continues thus. While the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son was constructed in the first centuries to describe something that is true. So, don't get me wrong. I e. the eternal preexistence of Yeshua. I do believe that's a true statement, and I do believe that the um, uh, the first century um fathers, the patristic writings, and the 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 ensuing uh, debates uh, that were that took place between the second And fifth centuries over the nature of Christ, I believe those those were necessary and very helpful. And the creeds that we formulated finally later on in the in the later fourth and early fifth centuries, right, the Nicene Creed and things like that. I believe that those were necessary, and they are good tools, and we can use that information. But um, at the same time, Tim Higgs trying to let us know, uh, and he continues, uh, it essentially. Uh, Those that focusing only on the nature of Christ, it essentially misconstrues the use of monogenes in John's gospel. What John's word tells us is that Yeshua is the only unique son of God who became flesh, truly human, in order to dwell with us with the purpose that we should come to understand and appreciate the very glory of God. You understand what Tim Hague's trying to uh, uh, focus on? It's not that Jesus is not God. Yes, John understands that. He talked about that earlier in verse 1. The word was with God and the word was God. Not a God, not a demigod, not a lesser God that comes alongside of the greater God or something to that effect, but very God himself possessing the same quality and deity and nature and essential function. And we would say in the Greek the the um, the or the homoousion, the very same nature as God The Son possesses that very same nature. He's one in this, or now we say uh, consubstantial is what we say in our creeds. But the point that John's trying to make in verse 14 when he describes Yeshua as being the only begotten is not that he is this eternally existent being like God was. The point that John's trying to stress now by using this phrase monogonous, which is rooted in the Greek word monogonais, is that Jesus is the only unique Son of God he is truly human. He dwelt with us, as Tim Haig says, with the purpose that we should come to understand and appreciate the very glory of God. And Tim Haig concludes, and we'll use this to conclude our study tonight, this last um, paragraph right here is what I'm going to read, right there. Uh, John goes on in his prologue to note the witness of Yeshua, on the Immersor, that's John the Baptist, to Yeshua's unique status. That is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That's verse 15. So John does express his ontological nature there. Once again, the preexistence of Yeshua is affirmed, for Yokanan has... Uh, Yochanan was born months before Yeshua, yet he confesses that Yeshua, quote, existed before me, end quote. So we know that John is speaking of a pre existent Messiah. Literally, before me he was, is what we would say in the Greek, hati um, protos mu ayn. Uh, Once again, the verb to be, right, uh, uh, that John is highlighting, which uh, we're fond of highlighting when we're looking at these types of ontological, ontological, ontological passages, this be verb, right, is. Uh, um, contrasted with the verb uh, to become, the genomai um, that we read about earlier. Moreover, in the same way, the Moses testimony is sure. The way the Moses, the way Moses testimony is sure and to be received. So Yohan's witness of the Messiah is true. Um, John's going to go on to say, for the Torah was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua the Messiah. In verse 17, if the Torah, Tim Hay concludes, if the Torah is received as the very revelation of God to Israel which it was in Paul's day, right, in John's day, then the Messiah who eternally existed to the Father should all the more be received. It's using kind of a light from heavy argument called Homer. So that's going to be the conclusion of looking at John 1, 14 uh, that we've been working through uh, in this particular part of our commentary. Um let me see, uh, let's see, in our Exploring the Shema, we had a, um, a little table, let me see if I can find it, it's basically down near the very end here, uh, right here, and we basically worked through John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. So next week, we'll be poised to look at Colossians 2.9 real quick, um, about uh, the, how how the sun is called uh, God, or uses terminology that links him to God. So we're done with John for now. Um, If you have furthering questions about uh, the John studies, go to my website, Exploring the Shema. Uh, Go to my website at datator.com and click on the Explore the uh, Discussions on the uh, Issues of Trinity link. That'll take you to the Exploring the Shema page. And as you begin to scroll down, look at all the videos that have to do with John. Right, the last, oh, easily the last, um, probably 20 or 30 videos. Uh, where we worked down through the idea of John starting I me mean, way, way over here, part 42.3, or should I say maybe part 42.1, and working our way all the way to part 48. So there's a lot of parts. Go back and watch those little videos. They're short. They're three to five minutes long, so you can easily take them in. You can binge watch them if you want. Uh, but we'll continue through our study of the Shema and have these difficult um, discussions on how can Jesus be fully God and fully human? Something that we affirm, okay? Amen. Amen, let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name and thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. I pray that you'll continue to give me clarity. I know the um, topics are difficult, I know they are challenging, and I know that I don't have all the answers. I'm not even imagining that I do. But Lord, I do know that you have all the answers, and I know that your Holy Spirit reveals truth to us as we press in, as we avail ourselves of the words, as we're diligent to study, as we push back against error and confusion, as we rely on the objective word of the truth to to wash over our minds and to continue to give us insight, as we avail ourselves of the resources that the other scholars have uh, done, Uh, Lord, help us to come to um, a better understanding of what your words are saying to us so that we can apply them, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you, so that we can be witnesses to people around us. We don't want our Bible study just to, to stay within the walls of our short little Bible study rooms and within the, the, the walls of our churches. We want to study in order to do, in order to teach others, in order to reach a lost and dying world, those around us, with the love of our Messiah, Yeshua. Explain to them that there's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. And his name is Jesus. His name is Yeshua. Give us boldness to witness to those around us. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory but Yeshua, Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him,